Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Next up is my conversation with poet and translator Jeffrey Yang, whose latest collection from Grey Wolf is one of my favorite of 2018 and definitely the first book that comes to mind as a book that deserves much, much more attention, even as it was picked since this conversation is one of the best poetry collections of the year by the New York Times. Hope you enjoy it. But before we begin, if you do find Between the Covers is a regular part of your listening habits, consider becoming a supporter of the show in the new year. If you support the show with a per-episode pledge at patreon.com slash betweenthecovers, you can get access to bonus material from each conversation, a copy of Jesse Ball's out-of-print book, Vera and Linus, or a signed copy of Ursula K. Le Guin Conversations on Writing, as well as receive notices and intros from me when each episode goes live. Or, if you prefer a one-time donation, you can go to davidnaman.com and click support. Either way, I'm excited for the year ahead, both the conversations I have lined up and a few surprises about the show that hopefully I'll be able to share sometime early in the year. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, editor, and translator Jeffrey Yang. Yang is the author of the poetry collections Vanishing Line and the Penn Joyce Osterweil award-winning An Aquarium, both out with Grey Wolf Press. He's editor of the anthologies Birds, Beasts, and Seas, Nature Poems, and Time of Grief, Morning Poems, and the collection The Sea is a Continual Miracle, Sea Poems and Other Writings by Walt Whitman. Yang is the translator of Amatjan Osman's Uyghurland, The Farthest Exile, the Nobel Peace Prize winning Liu Xiaobo's June 4th Elegies, the 11th century Song Dynasty poet Su Shur's East Slope, and poet Bei Dao's autobiography City Gate Open Up. Jeffrey Yang works as an editor at New Directions Publishing and New York Review of Books, and he's here today to talk about his latest book of poetry, Hey, Marfa, from Grey Wolf, a book of image verse, 
His poems in conversation with paintings and drawings by the British artist Rackstraw Downs. Susan Howe calls Hey Marfa a commonplace book, memoir, and hybrid obituary for things. Following a trail of last words and communal losses, here is a history learning to listen with eyes and mourning recovering the dead travelers on the road. Hey Marfa transmits voltage or vitalized matter as words reach to words. Tim Johnson of the Marfa Book Company says, Yang rebuilds for the reader a town that is notable for its many stark contrasts, restored and ruined buildings, wealth and poverty, international art and border enforcement. Hey Marfa makes a remarkable poetic accounting of the ways imagination is currently working with and against the histories and myths of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and the American West. The Poetry Society of America calls Hey Marfa a truly unique project of text and visuals, a synthesis of lyric and history and landscapes. And finally, Booklist says, Yang has constructed an Escher-like collage by weaving together musings on Southwest America's past and accounts of current art movements. Illustrated with the sublime paintings and drawings of British artist Rackstraw Downs, Hey Marfa is itself an art object as much as a book of exacting poetry, a collection to read in wonder and then reread, discovering something new. Welcome to Between the Covers, Jeffrey Yang. Thank you so much, David. It's great to be here. So before we talk about the ways you engage with and interrogate and unpack place, specifically Marfa and Hey Marfa, I wonder if we could start with describing the more general reputation Marfa Texas has in the in the imagination. Like if you were to imagine being a member of the Chamber of Commerce or <laughs> or an artist who is returning from an artist residency who maybe didn't think deeply about what underpins Marfa. What is what is Marfa for someone who hasn't heard of Marfa? Um, yeah, so I think it's um, it's a place that's pretty remote, first of all, and I think that's part of uh, what's a, well, how it's able to kind of continue uh, the way it is. It's a place where a lot of creative people, artists and writers and, you know, clothes makers and all, all kinds of people have found um, a space to kind of do their work. It's also a place where it's very close, of course, to the border, to Presidio on our side and, and Ojinaga on the Mexico side. And so a lot of people who work um, also in the town uh, come up from there. And so it's it's really a mix of um, Mexican-Americans and U.S. citizens and people who are who are go- who are out there, and I think the people, most of the people who I've, you know, um, I've gotten to know there well, you know, like Tim at the Marfa Book Company, have, have found a place there to do what they want to do, and also it's a place where people come and visit, even though it is remote, and so that that kind of helps the town too as well. So um, there's also the Chinati Foundation out there uh, that Donald Judd kind of started. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Donald Judd, since I, in a way he sort of puts the town on the map as a as a destination for artists, or at least that's my understanding. So 
what is the who is Donald Judd and and what did he do with Marfa that has made it a place where someone who may be from some entirely different demographic, different part of the country geographically would come there and and have an, a residency or or go look at internationally renowned art. Yeah, no, no. Uh, so Donald Judd is a contemporary American artist associated with minimal, minimalism. And he, yeah, he went out there and I want to, now I'm getting all the dates wrong, but I think it's sometime in the 70s. Is that about I, right? I think yeah, so. That's what, it's in the book. But, and, um, and he just kind of started to make art out there and buy property. And uh, at the time, there there wasn't much else in the town. Oh. And as he started to do more of his art out there, and it's an art that's very specific, you know, to the landscape of Marfa, which, you know, is a desert landscape, um, which I should have said in the beginning. And then it's it's also a little, there's a little bit of elevation. As you go down south, you go down a little bit. And... Um, and so he, uh, once he was there, and then other artists kind of came, and then this foundation, uh, the Dia Foundation, uh, uh, started to support some of his work, and then, and then eventually uh, the Chinati Foundation um, took over that uh, role and included a lot of other artists in their collection. And so, and so the foundation there. Um, there's two things. There's the Chinati Foundation that has um, a lot of this kind of very place-specific landscape art um, and, uh, with with people like Judd and and uh, there's some Carl Andre and a lot of yeah a lot of different things. And then in the town itself, there's also these uh, buildings um, that were Judd's kind of residence, his studios, and 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 there's a. a, a a space for um, John Chamberlain's art, and so and so there in that um, those spaces you could also go as a as a visitor. And when you were going there as for an artist residency yourself, mm-hmm. were you going there with the intention of looking at Marfa, or did the book Hey Marfa as a project arise once you were there um, doing some other project? Yeah, no, that's the thing. I never expected to write. Um, anything really about Marfa. I went out there, uh, I was invited there on a one-month um, residency to work on a translation by Liu Xiaobo, uh, his June 4th elegies. And um, I was very strict with my time to do, doing that because I really w- needed to get a, a draft done uh, of the book. And, and so it was only while I was there uh, that I started to kind of experience being there for a time and also meeting people and 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 seeing a little bit more of the environment around there that I started, you know, I, I wrote some things while I was there, more notes and maybe a couple starts to poems and observations and things. And it was really when I left that uh, over the years, it kind of just kept staying with me and what I thought would, would maybe be a poem or a little or a serial poem kind of just kept kept kind of uh, uh, staying with me and wanting to be something else. Yeah. And so over time, you know, uh, through, the, you know, up through 2017, I was still kind of writing and thinking about these things. And, and in the book, it kind of it spirals out a lot in, in ways from the actual, if you're talking about the physical place, but it's connected, I think, in a way. So, yeah. Well, I don't know if I've encountered a book that has a more perfect epigraph. 
I feel like the few words on the first page, they mm-hmm. echo through the whole book and maybe as a sort of ethos uh-huh. for how, how you engage with Marfa. So first we get a quote from the old master from the spring and autumn period, both in Chinese and English. And I'm guessing that's Confucius. Uh, it's Lao Tzu. Uh, it's Lao Tzu. Lao Tzu. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, from the Tao Te Ching. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so that quote is, truthful words are not beautiful. Beautiful words are not truthful. And then we get a separate unrelated and unattributed line that says, these lines curve through the desert. And I do feel like these lines of the epigraph curve through the desert of this book, mm-hmm. beginning to end. But when we get on to the next page, we realize that it, you're also talking about a different sort of line because we get one of Downs' uh, paintings mm-hmm. of an electrical substation. Right with the electrical lines coming off of the substation. Right. And so these lines of uh, truthful words are not beautiful, beautiful words are not truthful are going through the desert, but we're also seeing something that's ugly, potentially, mm-hmm. a substation that a lot of people might erase from their memory of a vacation. Right. Um, maybe being something truthful about how humans could potentially live and, and what relationship do they live to nature when they're, when they're out in the desert. Right. Um, but after the painting, we get a one-line page that says, hey, beautiful Marfa, mm-hmm. suggesting that maybe there's something about the beautiful Marfa that isn't truthful. Um, I feel like we could take that whole, that little gesture and that enactment you do in like mm-hmm. three or four pages of uh-huh. image and <laughs> yeah, and very few words, yeah. I feel like in a way could could be seen as an ethos for the whole book. Um, but before we talk about and uncoil this, mm-hmm. this tension between truth and beauty, mm-hmm. I was hoping maybe you could talk about why you chose Downs to collaborate with, whether there was something about either his aesthetic as a painter and, and illustrator, or whether it had to do with his own personal connection to Marfa mm-hmm. as a Marfa artist who, who, um, had Donald Judd's sculptures as one of his subjects at one point. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, um, I was probably writing this book for uh, two or three years and it's, it's gone through many evolutions and changes, um, in its structure and, and how, how it was going to finally be. And it was only then like, you know, two or three years in that, um, I actually wrote Rackstraw, and I had known about his work before going to Marfa, and um, but he wouldn't. I don't. He wouldn't describe himself as a as a Marfa artist. He actually lived and spends half the year in Presidio, um, which is um, about half an hour away on the border. And I think you know he's he's very much um, a solitary artist, and I think he del- deliberately uh, moved there instead although of course he has friends in in marfa and he would visit as you said also to paint there you know not just the substation but some of the art there um and so as we were corresponding uh, i i mean his art the it, it, i wrote the first substation poem uh before um we, we actually or actually knew that we we would be including these images Largely because I I also like that substation that's in Marfa. It's right next to an old ice factory, and um, also I had known about these series of paintings that he had done of the substation. Um, when I wrote him, we were just talking a lot about um, uh, 
while I was asking him if he would want to contribute something to the book, because it, 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 everything about it just fit with what his work with this with this book, you know, like you were talking about the electric lines and transforming energy and 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 these you know like that line the epigraph uh, the lines that curve through the desert i mean that's that's very much um you know poetic line and these wires um and it was funny cuz he wrote back and he he uh sent me this essay by Fairfield Porter an artist that he had um known and he had edited a, a book of essays of Porter's, and essentially the essay was a review of um, an exhibition. And the gist of it that I took of it was these kind of collaborations don't really work. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I, you know, and and I've you know I've said this before. I really like that, uh, and you know, and we continue to write and um, and over time. And I sent him at one point. I sent him a poem. And he suddenly wrote back, and he really loved it. And he he suggested, he was the one suggesting to use the paintings uh, in the book, and um, yeah, and and so I was kind of amazed at that. And so as as we would continue to um, to write, uh, he invited me over to his studio, and he makes a lot of drawings before he paints. Uh, he, he calls them preparatory drawings. And so he he had a, a, a large number of these drawings that he made of this particular series of paintings from Marfa to Presidio via the grid. Uh, and um, and so I looked through all these uh, drawings and, and I kind of chose um, 13 of them to also kind of echo that journey uh, and, uh, through the book and also through the desert that are also found in the book. And so there's kind of this visual poem and then the, the paintings that kind of connect it. And so that was kind of how that came about with, with, with Rackstraw's work. And, you know, his, his practice is, is very much an empirical kind of practice. And, and um, it's over a lot of time. It's, it's, it's um, going to the same spot for many months, sometimes leaving and coming back and so it's a very also physical uh um, practice and you know between his being there and, and what he perceives and and then what he's putting down on um on in the painting yeah well the the new york times art critic ken johnson he he described downs as painting beautiful pictures of ugly places <laughs> and and in a way it feels like when you mention the way he returns with sort of an attentiveness to place at, over time. And it sort of feels like you're doing something similar, pointing out the things that are sort of willfully or casually not seen or erased or edited out in order to, say, experience Marfa only as the wondrous and weird art mecca in the desert. And it seems important to me that you, you start not in Marfa, but with your arrival in mm -hmm. the El Paso airport. Right. Because the curving line through the desert isn't just the poetic line and the electric lines, it's also the border. Right. Another exactly. curving line yeah. through the desert. And perhaps the ugliest, and then also then by if we're going by the epigraph of Lao Tzu, mm -hmm. the most truthful line. Right. So tell us why we start in El Paso for you and and what that what that means as a as a first gesture for exploring Marfa to start at the El Paso airport. Yeah, no, I think, 
Yeah, that's an important part of the the start of the book too. Um, and um, it wasn't always there <laughs> for the book, but uh, it also kind of signified um, my original arrival and and people's arrival to most people's most people's arrival to Marfa is through El Paso unless they you know they take the train or drive. But um, and so. And being in El Paso and just just seeing, I had never been to El Paso, um, and just seeing uh, the city and you're driving through and you're really right along the border there. And, you know, I've read about this a lot and Juarez uh, across the way there, but uh, to see it as something else. And so it's, you know, I grew up in San Diego, so I know, you know, some about the border there and, and La Jolla and Tijuana. But uh, it was just an important place, I think, for the book to start too, and it and it and it fit because uh, also of you know arriving there, and and then the time it takes, you know, it's like a three and a half hour drive uh, to Marfa through the desert first, you know, along the border, um, and so it's uh, it seemed like a good place for the narrative in this book to start too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like you... And all when, the issues, you know? All, yeah, I mean... All the you, issues of the border and, and the U.S. And, yeah, so... And the juxtaposition, yeah, yeah, you're, you're, picked yeah. up, you're picked up in a Prius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> yeah, and you're contending with the border, border violence, border surveillance, the killing of women in Juarez, and sort of expanding and dilating a moment that I think a lot of people in transit to the artist residency wouldn't necessarily... It wouldn't necessarily stay mm-hmm. in their minds. And when we have that in the painting of the substations and your poems on Ciudad Juarez, it feels like in a handful of pages, you've not just situated us in place, but you've also raised questions of racism and misogyny and climate and nature and poverty and wealth. You have this line in that section, I don't know which to hate more, violence or the causes of violence, my hate or the hate of others. And I I wondered if you could maybe speak to this line in relationship to your meditation on, on Ciudad Juarez and El Paso and, and Marfa. It's such a dark part of, of our history, um, both sides of the border. But those lines specifically, I mean, it's, you know, it's obviously an allusion uh, for those who read Wallace Stevens to um, 13 Ways of a Blackbird, Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And uh, he has a line, something like about, I don't know which, or about the whistle uh, of the blackbird. Um, And um, I'm forgetting exactly. But uh, so those lines, I mean, Juarez has been so kind of this, the worst of, of almost everything of, of our history and, and of, Contemporary history, Mexico's history—you know these these murders of of women that um, really no one knows uh, what's going on, but obviously it's connected to um, to the drugs and to to the um, yeah the cartels and also just the way power works and in uh, in our country and and the factories along the border there, the foreign factories in Mexico, the Kiodoras and things. Um, and so I've read a lot about that history. And I mean, it's also something that you don't want to, you know, Juarez as a city has been trying to become 
a city, you know, and so you don't want that to just be the kind of focus and the overpowering memory of this place, and it's not, I think. Um, and so it was interesting because while I was writing this from the start to beginning, things were changing in Juarez as well, you know, from what I read and from hearing from people. It had gotten a lot better, you know, and uh, there was a lot more going on, but unfortunately now it's actually turning again, you know, the past couple of years. And so, and so these cycles seem to come and go there. Um, but those lines, I mean, it's it's really just about, you know, an, invi an individual perception and responsibility. Also, that feeling of a little bit of help, you know, actually a lot of helplessness also in the face of all this violence. And then and then just what what can we do really with hate, you know, because and so in and that idea of what you know, the, the hate that kind of seems to perpetuate these things and anger and violence. But, uh, yeah, so it was, it was kind of kind of trying to to deal with that in, in, in a way. Yeah, and, and all on the different sides of that, yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Jeffrey Yang about his latest poetry collection, Hey Marfa, from Great Wolf Press. In in your last collection, Vanishing Line, mm -hmm. you, you also explore lines, yep. yeah. timelines, bloodlines, as and these join the borderline and the high voltage lines of this latest one. Um, throughout this book and the last book, you, you collage and interweave other voices into your poems. Mm -hmm. We might get quotes from a settler from the 19th century or from a newspaper article or from one of Donald Judd's cooks. And I was curious if there was an ethos or a desired aesthetic or political effect you were going for by enacting this by placing your voice among many voices, mm -hmm. uh, by perhaps interrupting the cohesion of a of a lyric eye. I, I, I wondered about your thoughts on on changing the syntax by having other voices, by um, by interbraiding uh, essentially like a community, not in just in space, but across time. Yeah, yeah. No, I. I um... I mean, I love having these voices in poems and poetry. And I mean, early on, I knew that these kinds of voices would, would, would be a part of the book, um, just as because it's the fabric of, of the place and the history there and of, of our country. And so I try and, and, and I, so I try and incorporate it, the, those, those quotes and those uh, other people in ways that... Um, are respectful, you know, and also um, are are part of the th the themes and interweavings of the of the of the poems because I really think of it as a, a weaving in and out uh, of of different uh, histories and, and languages and 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 um, you know more maybe travel kind of observations and in nature kind of writing. And so these things all become a part uh, of, of what the book is and, and in a way of also capturing, trying to capture a bit of the, the spirit of the place. Uh, and so, yeah. That's... Yeah. Well, another set of voices um, that we encounter regularly in the mm -hmm. book are quotes from something you call the book of last words, right? Yeah. which we soon figure out are literally the last words spoken by someone before they die, right. either the last words of an artist or the last words of an inmate executed by the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. So here again, maybe the twinning of 
the twinning of ugliness and beauty. But I was wondering if you could tell us how these ended up in the book and, and to what end we, we keep being reminded of the last words. Yeah, no, that became part of the book um, pretty early on. Um, I, I've, I've been struck by uh, last words, you know, for a while, and also just this idea of what last means. Um, but you're right, these are all uh, very, uh, very real uh, last words. And so I, and I was surprised um, when I was, because I had some of these, I had written some of these things down before, but then I actually discovered there's, uh, you know, in the there's these anthologies of last words, and lots of them are from, you know, the the 19th century, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, uh, where it was more popular to uh, record these things, um, whether it was a loved one or famous people or, or something when when it was possible, or. And somehow it just become became a part of kind of the the uh, the history and mythology of of a person's life, you know. And so it's not just uh, well, most of the time in these anthologies, they're they're well known people in some way, uh, you know, political figures or or um, uh, writers and things like that. But then uh, a lot of these last words I kind of also found on my own, and 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 also there's last words that are included uh, of. Um, people who uh, were executed in Texas. And, and that I found uh, kind of by chance because these, these words are all, um, are all online. I mean, they're, they're all kind of there uh, uh, on, as, I don't know, as a kind of document. It's really a horrifying thing to, to read and go through, um, but there's hundreds of them. And, and so I, I, I thought it was very important to, to include that as well as part of the book. I, I, oh, I made up yeah. my own, I made up my own narrative, uh-huh. thinking that you were working on the June Fourth elegies, right? Leo Schaubo right? Elegies, yeah. Uh, Death haunted, yeah. He's in jail, yeah. Nobel Peace Prize winning, yeah. Writer no longer with us, but um, right. I wondered if that played any role in informing that choice. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I had never met Leo Chabot. He was already in prison and there was always the, the big chance that he was never going to get out of prison because his health was never particularly good. You know, it, it definitely worsened. And then, and then it happened. He died uh, still in prison basically. And, um, and so that, and also uh, people who, there was some people who I'd met um, in Marfa who later passed away. You know, there's a historian who I met um, there, a blind, she was at that point blind, and she had written this two-volume history of Marfa. And um, and she passed away, and, and there was a woman named Tyge, a rancher, who I'd met and then other and then other people. There was the writer, uh, the writer, the poet uh, Robert Creeley, who had gone to Marfa and got sick there and then passed away. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of this um, this death that was that was there already. Um, and so the book of last words. I mean, they're also it's you know these last words that people that are recorded become a kind of odd summation of a person's life in for better or worse but they they come they have this heightened uh, magnetic quality that I find also uh, can be connected to just 
poem or poetry, the poetic line in ways. And so, and so it also made sense um, to incorporate that. And so I, I just kind of imagined this, this book of last words uh, that, that these um, lines would be a part of. Yeah. Well, one thing I noticed about the language of the settler colonists of Marfa, as well as sometimes in the last words of a dying person, mm-hmm. is a tendency towards the abstract and nonspecific. For instance, you quote Elsie Bright, mm-hmm. a cattleman and churchman from 1885, who says, Before me was a new and untried country, an experiment. And Elsie Bright's phrase made me wonder if that sort of language that doesn't have to contend with other voices, mm-hmm. that is unimpeded and sort of cast over everything without a counterpoint, mm-hmm. is a vehicle for violence or a potential vehicle for violence. Uh, I, so I, I think of a quote from mm-hmm. the Martinique poet, Edouard Glissant, mm-hmm. who says, I say that relation is made up of all the differences in the world and that we shouldn't forget a single one of them, even the smallest. If you forget the tiniest difference in the world, well, relation is no longer relation. Now, what do we do when we believe this? We call into question, in a formal manner, the idea of the universal. The universal is a sublimation, an abstraction that enables us to forget small differences. We drift upon the universal and forget these small differences. And relation is wonderful because it doesn't allow you to do that. And I wondered your thoughts about this sentiment of his and whether this at all underlies your choice to contrary to say the settler mm-hmm. language often you're specifying and cataloging it feels like in your books whether it's an aquarium or the events that happen in in um in the encounters with indigenous populations and in vanishing line mm-hmm. um it feels like you're you're doing something that is both polyvocal and mm-hmm. specifying around things that are erased. Yeah. No, I mean, I love that quote. I should, I could have used that <laughs> in the book too. But um, no, I think like the, the bright um, quote that you mentioned, um, um, it's true. There, it, there is something so general, but also beautiful about that. But then um, br- by bringing it into the book, I was hoping to kind of, you know, counterpoint with these other voices but I mean I think a lot of what I love about poetry is in the particulars in the very small particulars of um, whether it's the subject matter or or in the smallest words you know George Oppen was always talking about the small the smallest words are the are the hardest ones to get right in the poem and um, and so um, and so no, that's that's a, a very important part uh, for me when I'm writing and trying to um, kind of move between those things. But it's also, I mean, you're, uh, you know, the, those words of a settler. Um, it's, it's also um, you see a lot of travel writing and the history of travel writing uh, as a kind of um, can be a very uh, kind of uh, colonistic kind of colonizing gesture uh, in these in generalizations. I mean, obviously, the, the best travel writing is not like that. But, but, um, and so trying to to also question that and subvert that, you know, uh, as um, as a kind of record of of being in a new place. You know, I, I've always been uh, a fan. I mean, since college of of Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place, which is about you know this tourist you going. 
uh, uh, down to, I think it was Jamaica, if I'm remembering right. But, um, and, and just challenging, you know, all of our assumptions and not being blind to, to what is there and being a more aware and, and conscious, uh, uh, of, the, of your surroundings as a, as a visitor uh, to a place. And so I was trying to, to do that um, as well as much as I could with, um, with this book. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to hear a little bit of the poetry. Sure. Yeah. I, I've picked out two, page 24 and page 35. Okay. Conquistadors. Sunrise over a dirt road by a low-wire fence, birdsong. A rooster crows, then distant church bells peeling arpeggios in the thin air. Two horses graze next to a roofless ruin. Light slowly swells, expands, fills the heavens, awakens the undergrowth, and the blood of the defeated running fast through the earth. Called minorities by conquest, swept along on and beyond the state's three reservations, land once a republic of raids and counter-raids, of alliances kept and broken, of patara bueyes humanos sumas cados, of arbados, cotalchuches, jicarillas, lipans, of chibolos, kikapus, susolas, quitoles, malacones, of neches, Coayas, Coyoteros, Atayos, Apaches, Comanches, Atacapans, of Piros, Mescaleros, Wichitas, Tauvayas, Tonkawas, Bidais, Teas, Cheyans, Kiowas, Karankawas, Utas, and on, diverse nations known through page, named each stretch of sand, unspoken presence. Hope I got some of those pronunciations. Okay, that was the first time I read that. <laughs> Although I always read it aloud. <laughs> yeah, that's a difficult. I chose a difficult. No, one. no, it's great. I'm glad. <laughs> and this is called Substation. And actually, this is the first Substation poem um, I, I wrote for the book. But uh, I think it's the second one that appears in the book. Substation. Live lines lead to the substation grid, vital node between the tracks and a lonely row of small houses, where an asphalt road meets lattice towers, high tension buses and switches. Transmission lines sail to lightning gyres, lugs fix cross strut to strut transformers induct, step up, step down, fenced off structure, wooden pylons, against sand and sky, insulators, isolators, arresters, ext constructed monument to the unknown prisoner, receding cube within cube of walls of air, pantographic galvanized gantry, breaker and fuse, relay equipage, kilovolts hum unending ohm of the lamp's transmission, down at the switchyard, through the body, Electromagnetic, lines bond totemic, linked, desert succulence, less wilderness, less relentless wasteland, lines further prospect, 
toward a pure array of sun. I've been listening to Jeffrey Yang read from Hey Marfa from Grey Wolf Press. I forgot that this poem has a nod to Whitman with the line through the body, electromagnetic. Right, yeah. Um, but I do want to ask you about Walt Whitman. Okay, yeah. Because uh, recently I had Tommy Pico on. He's uh-huh. from the Kumayai Nation near yeah, San yeah, Diego. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And his work explicitly explicitly declares a distrust of the first person plural, use of we, right. and a, an ambivalence to abstract language. Yeah, yeah. So I was asking yeah. him questions, particularly as an indigenous poet about his feelings about Walt Whitman mm-hmm. since Whitman is explicitly trying to embody the American experiment and yeah. because he employs a seemingly universal I and we in the service of a sort of poetic nation building and because Whitman has a spotty troublesome and contradictory uh, set of views yeah. toward indigenous people toward African Americans toward Mexicans and others right that he didn't see quite fitting into the American experiment right. as he saw it. And all of Tommy Pico's books are book length. Uh-huh. And so at one point I asked him what books influenced him. And he said, vanishing line is one of the uh-huh. books that was influential. And I hadn't read it yet at the time. Uh-huh. This was a couple months ago. Right. Um, and so I didn't know that your book vanishing line engages with the genocide of native nations and also quotes Walt Whitman directly. So that was a an interesting segue and coincidence. And I wanted to just read a short passage that you quote in Vanishing Line and uh-huh. then ask you some questions. Sure. So um, this is what you say in Vanishing Line. Whitman, who in March 1846 calls the slave trade a monstrous business, a disgrace and a blot on the character of the Republic, one year later writes, with the present slave states, of course, No human being anywhere out from themselves has the least shadow of a right to interfere. Ten years later, he shifts emphasis and says, speaking about Africa, in their own country, degraded, cruel, almost bestial, the victims of cruel chiefs and of bloody religious rites, lives never secure, no education, no refinement, no elevation, no political knowledge, such is the general condition of the African tribes. It is also to be remembered that no race ever can remain slaves if they have it in them to become free. Why do the slave ships go to Africa only? So I was, I was wondering if you could speak to why we find these lines in Vanishing Line and how, as an American poet yourself and a poet of color, how you orient yourself to Whitman and sort of his embodiment of the national project because then i think about like when we were talking about Mm -hmm. lc bright right and i said is there violence in this abstraction and you said yes maybe but it's also really beautiful and clearly whitman is very beautiful yeah and then we go back to the epigram that uh, that you have at the beginning of the book Mm -hmm. that truthful things aren't beautiful yeah I'm just, I'm curious. So uh, tell tell us about Whitman here in Vanishing Uh Line, and then maybe you can can broaden that to some of the stuff you're exploring in the Marfa exploration. Right, yeah. No, that's that's a good question. I mean, well, just first, I mean, Whitman, Whitman, I should also say to you, because you mentioned in the intro, I also edited this book of Whitman's um, writings focused on the sea, the poetry and the prose. I mean, Whitman, I've... I have such um, an admiration for that first edition of Leaves of Grass, which uh, 
came out in 1855 and and these long lines and all these weird ellipses and dots and and no titles and and you know and and these yeah these long lines and what it was trying to do at that time um i mean but it also it's true i mean whitman uh is a very contradictory and controversial controversial figure uh in the sense that he also was you know his own best publicist in in ways and 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 so i think in vanishing line um in that particular where those lines come up it was it was in a it was in a long poem called yenicott in that book and um and that book dealt with a lot of the history in the northern tip of uh long island and so whitman there it, it was important to kind of for me to bring in there like one because um you know whitman loved long island and he walked along the beaches there and also then also as the figure of our most probably revered poet in in the US you know and um and um but then also seeing like some of the letters and in, in in his i think it's his journals i can't remember for it's all in this these complete works you could see the prose a lot of this other prose um that isn't as well read uh at least uh previously and you could see some of these things that he's he's thinking about race but but then it's so it's so interesting because he keeps it out of the poetry you know he keeps that out of the poetry it's almost like he's editing himself in a way but and then and then in these articles which sometimes aren't even he attributed to him but like as an editorial kind of a thing for the paper he happened to be working at the time or or, or in that sense so but it was it's just so imp- it, it was kind of shocking to read those things actually because i had heard about them and i read had actually first read you know uh pieces about that and then to actually go and find it and read it uh uh it's um no it's pretty shocking and and it's never taught like that it, it, you know Whit- Whitman is not a complicated figure when you when you learn about him when i learned about him in in high school and so and so for me it was one way in that poem where i was dealing with kind of the history and mythology of that area uh uh or uh, of that kind of imagined place uh uh um that that he was a part of that that landscape and so and here in here too you know when you're talking about the opening of the west and you're thinking about the desert and just that in a lot of that history you know there's 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 some of the kind of old railroad history that comes in comes into you know um which connects to the technology of the wires you know um it, it's a similar kind of thing this idea of 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 what america was supposed to be <laughs> you know and what yeah. it really was and there's such uh, a contrast between that ideal and the real of what was really going on and whitman of course was always talking about the ideal and the real in poetry and in prose and so and so it, it's those kinds of themes you know they're all throughout our history here and and, and so it, it, he just has become uh if he came part of the text too in a way yeah i mean yeah, you have yeah. that line I in hemarfa we extend his leaves with acts of conquest right 
Right, exactly. And so that was spoken through a character in the in the book named Straw, and um, and right, and uh, and so yeah. I mean, I I'm 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 more of the reader who will who will you know still read Whitman and still appreciate so much about about his work, but it doesn't have to be for me uh, a complete kind of. Uh, reverence and devotion anymore. Yeah, no, I mean you I have think, a you uh, have a complicated exactly. View and I think that's it, and I think it's you know it's an interesting perspective to have that you say we don't have as much for someone like Emily Dickinson who is much more. I mean, seeing those two figures as as kind of the founding people of American poetry, and right. all that, you know, as all or as always pointed to as such, for better or for worse. And so, well, it's uh, weird how she the more we allow her poems to be the way they really were written, mm-hmm. the more and more she seems avant-garde yeah. today. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. But there's a settler, or a quote from a settler in Vanishing Line. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of Whitman in regarding the danger of, of people becoming abstractions. So the settler says, after the Christians have multiplied and the natives have disappeared and melted away, a memorial of them may be preserved. And it made me think of how Whitman was very much for preserving native place names mm-hmm. across the country. He wanted almost, he wanted them preserved unilaterally, I think, uniformly. Like he wanted the names of the places to be na- the native names. But he oh, did, yeah. but he did seem less concerned about the ultimate um, actual end game for the native people themselves. Um, and there's a poem he has at the end of his life about the redwoods disappearing that a lot mm-hmm. of people think is sort of a elegy for the the red people mm-hmm. also that the redwoods would disappear and the red people would disappear and sort of as part of the uh, inevitable die out for the American project. Right. Um, yeah. So I want to read one more quote outside of your work um, okay. by the critical theorist Homi Baba uh-huh. that says. The void that emerges through the act of writing is not an evocative abstraction lost in the mists of metaphor. The void is, quite literally, the empty space of erasure and extermination, of missing persons, destroyed things, hidden histories, lost records, expropriated lands, murdered minorities. The humanist must graphically evoke such emptiness and erasure without sublimating these absences remaining all the while wary of every dream and nation. And I guess I wondered what your thoughts were on that quote, because mm-hmm. to me, that's a really good description of Hey Marfa, yeah. that it's graphically evoking emptiness as erasure, uh-huh. making visible the absences without supplementing them. But I didn't know if you even sign on to the sentiment of the quote in the first place. So I was curious what your thoughts were about um, maybe one of the projects being... Uh, to make graphic what has been erased. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know what, uh, the, the exact context of the quote, of course, but from what you read there, I mean, no, I would agree with that too. Cause it's, I mean, in, in this book, I, I was also trying, you're talking about the graphic representation, but the poems unfold in a very visual way too. I mean, they're not, just um, left justified or or something, and so and that took um, that was a big part of how of how um, I was writing this book. 
Um, and so, and one of the reasons why, I mean, you're talking about um, hidden histories and things. And so, I mean, one is that I, I've always, or I, you know, I think of poetry on one level as, as a kind of digging and digging, you know, below the surface of things um, to kind of deeper truths and trying to trying to figure those things out. And also that this landscape, this desert landscape, it could be deceptively um, recursive in a way, uh, repetitive. You're kind of driving out there or walking and it's, it's, you could be completely, I mean, I'm just, I was just completely overwhelmed by, you know, that contrast between the scrub and the, 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 the sand, uh, the hills in the distance, and then the, the sky, which is just enormous. Um, and something's going on in the air there too. <laughs> but, but, um, but then as you look more closely, you know, and I've, people have asked me this before and I, I don't know how else to say it, so I'm going to have to repeat myself here, but um, it, as you look more closely, you, you really see how diverse even just the uh, ecological life, you know, the plants and the animals live there and have found a home there. And it's the same with us as well. And so, and so the book kind of unfolds in this kind of uh, visual way, uh, and on the one hand, trying to echo some of that recursiveness through um, through how the poems are laid out, and also things that kind of come back in different ways, themes and lines, and um, and yeah, and trying to really delve into some of those kind of um, places in history or or in um, or how we view kind of uh, nature in a way that, that, that have been, I don't know, overlooked uh, in, mm. in ways, um, or kind of deliberately uh, uh, repressed, you know, through, through, our, um, through the way we've kind of dominate the, uh, the land here. Um, yeah, so those are some of the things that... Uh, well, as, as we move through... As we move toward Marfa and through Marfa and through the landscape where we get, it's punctuated by uh, high voltage substations, but it's also punctuated by caves, Mm -hmm. some of which are the site of the deaths of Chinese laborers. Yeah, exactly. Thousands of which died blasting tunnels for the railroad. And I I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that history. I mean, I'm imagining you and Marfa also, you're you're doing Chinese translation. Uh Uh-huh. And also yeah. finding this Chinese history. Yeah. I don't know how memorialized or how um, buried that history is and yeah. how, how visible is that history. Yeah. Or how much did you have to turn over things to to find it? Particularly with the Chinese railroad. Yeah. No, I mean, that's something that I've I learned about since college. Uh, yeah, really. I mean, not much in high school, but it was really in college when uh, uh, that that I, that I read more and looked more at that history, you know, and it, it's, it's also when you're dealing with these, with these histories and, and these things, it's, it becomes, um, immediately complicated and, and, and you're having to find the right balance, at least for me in, in trying to write about it, you know, um, on the one hand, if you look at the history of kind of, uh, say Chinese American, um, um, writing, uh, poets, novelists in uh, in the U.S. There's a point where you see um, uh, 
that they were almost expected to write about these things. You know, they're kind of like uh, uh, pigeonholed into these kinds of themes and, and stuff like that, which isn't a fair way to look at the work. But at the same time, I think coming out of that uh, uh, one being the child of Chinese immigrants uh, to the U.S., um, it's already kind of there for me to look at. But it's also part of the greater history, too. I mean, that's that's the thing. And so, and so I wanted to write about it. And um, for this particular history, it's also very hard to write about because there's no written records. I mean, that's in the poem. That's in the poem that you, I think you're, you're, you're talking about there. There's, there's really no records. There's no letters or, or anything. And, and, and so it's, and that's always been, you, it's still to this day, you read about um, that history. And it's, it's, it's hard because um, you, people hope there's some archive maybe and, or some family library where there's some letters or something uh, uh, there. But, you know, it, who knows? And so you're, you're dealing um, with uh, different kinds of things. You're dealing with like archaeology, you know, and your other, other disciplines, you know, come in to play very quickly when you're looking at that history and and um and so yeah and so as far as the opening of the west is concerned and and dealing with whatever this idea of the west is we have uh that history of the railroads is just kind of completely necessary i think (laughs) to think about you know And, and so uh and again also if you're looking at it from the perspective of how it's been treated in, say, Hollywood or or in in a lot of writing, it's 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 always uh, usually uh, an afterthought or, or just kind of uh, um, um, kind of just uh, something a setting, you know. Uh, and and so um, and so I wanted to kind of like bring that in more deeply in a, in, in a way if I could. Well, I love how we don't get the Marfa of reputation until really deep in the book. So uh-huh. <laughs> we, we go very far in Hey Marfa before we get the famous art of Marfa or, right. <laughs> or even your art making in Marfa. Um, but in the heart of the book, we do get a series of poems that are a conversation with this character you mentioned, the gunslinger Straw, right. who shares his thoughts on nonviolence, on memory, on the mm-hmm. nature of Marfa and more. So tell, us, tell us about Straw. Um, who he is and how you see him functioning in the in, in the middle. Yeah, I mean, I kind of have to think it's it's better for readers if they look at it to figure that out themselves. But I could say like a, a we'll few things a about things. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> that's a, that's why I'm here. But um, um, yeah, so those poems. I mean, it definitely comes directly out of uh, or the idea. The idea of of the gunslinger, you know, it, it comes out of Ed Dorn's uh, book, Gunslinger, his Gunslinger poems. Um, but but then, and he, of course, was uh, was um, dealing with the cliche of of the gunslinger in the West, uh, in the history of the West. Who, whose poems? Edward Dorn. Edward yeah, Dorn. Ed Dorn. Yeah, Ed Dorn. And um, and so, uh, I mean, what he's he's doing with it that. He he calls him gunslinger throughout, uh, and it's and what he's doing is you know is is different in this in his long poem, but but the, that figure to make kind of to shorten it into into straw uh, s t r a 
It's one of the places in the book where there's really uh, a multivalent um, title. Uh, it's because those poems are titled Straw and Figure. In the book, it, it was, you know, um, one of the few really great epiphanies for me I had <laughs> coming upon <laughs> and coming upon that because it really opened up a way for me to write about some of the things in those poems that I was really struggling with uh, in trying to deal with. And so by giving it, uh, it a voice to this figure, which kind of alludes to many things, it could be, you know, strata or, 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 or straw, like a straw man, or, you know, or um, even a little bit uh, rack straw. Yeah, know, I was wondering bit, about uh, that. Uh, but, of, but of course, that's not him. But so some of these things that, uh, and other things that come in with that name um, really helped me um, figure out a way to, to write about that and, and also to write about it in the voice to make it a bit more fun, but also dealing with uh, it in a kind of um, trying to engage with that, with the, with the subject matter of those poems, you know, uh, uh, through this other voice again, like you're saying. But in this case, it was a, um, a made-up voice through, or imagined voice through, through straw, yeah. Can, can we hear one of them? Oh, yeah, sure. Page 56. Sure, okay. Okay. You always choose the long ones. <laughs> Are they all long? No, no, no. No, I just met uh, like some of the, the substation. No, no, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, <laughs> most people choose the short ones. <laughs> okay. Straw. Marfa is no arid La Jolla. No Palm Springs decoy straw holds forth. No, not even a crude tract of La Mancha. They'll lance a windmill here, and you'll be shot faster than you can say, Ali Fanfaron. This place is perceived as a small, cosmopolitan oasis, celebrated for its current industry, art. Art as external creative force, more careful development. Mather's squalid desert. An art island that depends on poor locals and neighboring islands to keep costs down. And while not as shaka as Molokai, there's no hurry or rush. Rather, it's one contained speed trap. Push the gas and you'll find yourself at the pink courthouse, begging at the bench of Judge Cinderella, who will take cash for not changing your Prius into a pumpkin. Emigrants, illegals, crewlers, and crafters, adobe mixers, day trippers, home sitters, hydroponic tomato pickers, Ranchers, loners, passing celebrities, and photo shooters, if passing quickly. Registered sex offenders, if not offending. Poets and failures, javelina, sausage makers, bond makers, readers, and home birthers. All make up the local fix. A place of few first words. Desperado bookishness. No public playground. Kids, scarce public schools and a downswing. Low rent housing. Harder to come by as out-of-towners buy and sell and buy. Population wavers around 2,000, 70% Obama voters. Most common surname Sanchez or Martinez. Pick your plot, Latino or Anglo. Bookstores to die for, ditto the radio station, cozy library, camp in a trailer, eat Mediterranean in a trailer, drool over Ramona's burritos. Chain scarce, mind clears, leave your pretense at the Prada. A quiet simplicity settles in. 
to start anew or continue to lose your way and loose your imagination farther out to Presidio's giant battery reserve. Straw pauses, tosses back his mescalero, and I notice a scar running across the gular skin of his throat. But hey, Marfa, what do I know? I just got here. Tomorrow, hasta pronto. An airstrip would kill you. <laughs> been listening to Jeffrey Yang read from Hey Marfa. I wanted to touch briefly on the Marfa lights, which are an attraction and also with a lot of legend behind them. Oh, yeah. Um, so they also also feel like they might be a, a physical manifestation of this idea of abstraction or like uh -huh. the desert as the blank slate. So there's yeah. there's this writer, Kathleen Schaefer. Uh -huh. She's the author of Marfa, the Transformation of a West Texas Town. Mm -hmm. And she says the most fascinating aspect of the lights is that in a group of curious onlookers, some people will see them and others won't. She says, I think about the way we see things, how we see the landscape, but it's also about who is doing the scene. Seeing the landscape is not a given, it's an active process. So I was curious about whether you saw them and also if you could talk about uh, maybe the legend of them. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I definitely saw them. I mean, uh, as as they are written about in the book. <laughs> um, but the first time I actually saw them or imagined seeing them was actually in college, too. I was in a class with Quincy Troop, and he had invited this writer, Catherine Bowman, a poet, who I think is from El Paso, um, Anyways, she came to the class and she, uh, actually, I don't even think she read the poem. We were given her book to read for the class and I read a book and I think it's actually called Marfa Lights, but it's about the Marfa Lights. That was the first time I ever heard of Marfa and, uh, and the lights and, and already I was kind of, I was really struck by, by that, um, by that image, you know. And so, I mean, I'll just say a little bit of what, of how, I mean, these, these lights that are seen out there in the desert specific to, to Marfa have been, um, tr they've been tr explained in different ways, uh, uh, whether it's kind of the elements in the earth rising into the air and the atmosphere, you know, uh, or the particular geographic kind of like... Um, what do they call those Nazca lines of the desert kind of things, or, or whether it is actual uh, UFO kind of things, um, and so it's definitely part of um, the mythology and and geography of of Marfa. So much so that when you go out there, you drive uh, like a, a mile or two out of town, and there's actually a Marfa Lights observation uh, uh, area there. You know, and so, um, and yeah, and so it's, 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 everyone who goes there tries to see them. I'll just say like, I'll just say that. <laughs> could you, could so. you read the lights for Oh us? yeah, sure. Yeah. The lights. Actually, I should actually, I, I just, uh, saw that this poem was put on LitHub. John Freeman had put that on there. So I was grateful for that. And, um, yeah, anyways, I, was, I just, uh, just saw that. It's called The Lights. One night we sought out the lights off an empty highway. 
not a soul but us four on some version of the no tour, among others brought here before and after by a gift, dropped into a bracket of words, listening to the cosmic noises in the night. And on the horizon we saw the lights, hovering eerily for a moment, chills at being chosen, growing brighter, then disappearing, reappearing, following the curves we realized of the distant road. We waited longer in the darkness. There must have been stars, but I can't remember any. Then lights on the highway slowly neared us on the divide, closer, closer, the lights of the Luciferum pulled round, blinding us. A patrolman stepped out, asked us what we were doing here in the middle of nowhere, alone, on the highway in the middle of the night. He searched our car, paced to and fro, scanning our faces with a bitty flashlight. Dispatcher's voice abruptly beckoned over the radio, saving us for a moment. The patrolman spoke a few words in a low voice, then walked back, then walked back toward us with a last question. You all are Americans, aren't you? And we lied and said yes, and he nodded and turned, told us to keep out of trouble before hitting the leather, and drove off. While in my mind I could feel the gunslinger's stare, the grave, cold look he cast at me from the saloon seat next to me when he tried to warn me, this is a desert full of fucking agents who want to fuck you. And that kind of opens up the, the gunslingers, <laughs> the straw sequence. It's a great, it's a great opening. I don't know, point. I'm not allowed to say that on the radio. Well, well <laughs> this will just be in the podcast. Okay, all oh, right, of course. <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about the way you engage place yes. in your work. Mm -hmm. Not just present day space of place, but also place across time, because it kind of reminds me a little bit of the eco poetics of Forrest Gander. Oh yeah, the yeah, way he right. uses the geology, geological idea of the core sample. Uh huh. So in a way, it feels like you're doing a core sample of Marfa. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I also yeah. kind of wondered if yeah, the polyvocality of both of your work, if it's a coincidence that you're both translators and collaborators with other artists yeah if there's something about maybe the decentering of self or the engagement with otherness and then you have this line this poem by robert duncan at the end of vanishing line right let us speak of how these perishing things uphold me so that i fall into place mm -hmm. and so we have that we have the repeated substations in hey marfa reminding us that our relationship to the land isn't sustainable or reciprocal mm -hmm. and that we aren't thinking of the perishing things as we engage with this, with the place and mm -hmm. your aquatic bestiary enumerating and cataloging marine creatures feels um, as a counterpoint to this, an engagement with place and even the books you've translated. So yeah. the uh, book by Bay Dow, his autobiography, City Gate Open yeah, Up. Yeah. He hasn't been to his home in thirteen years. Yeah. And he goes back not recognizing it at all. And so his autobiography is sort of rebuilding Beijing in his mind in words. Yeah. And in the introduction to the anthology you edited on poems about grief or mourning, you say that mourning happens in an in between state in a measure of time and space suspended for remembering that poetry mediates a space between grief and transformation so that the time of grief can also become a time of gratitude. 
it's just a long-winded mm-hmm. <laughs> catalog, but yeah, I'm curious yeah. about your your thoughts on place and whether I mean, would you consider yourself an eco a poet a poet with eco poetics, yeah. or uh, or is that a strange label to associate with you? No, I mean, um, no, I would I would uh, happily be a part of that um, group or conversation. Um, I mean, I think it's, and, and I think, you know, for me and, the, and my, and, and the work, it's, it's, it's very important to me too, this idea of an eco system and a ecology and eco poetics. I mean, I, I couldn't even really define what that word means, uh, what it is. I mean, I've seen, I've read things about it and, um, anthologies, but I think it's important. And I, you know, there's a poet, also a Chilean poet, uh, Nicanor Parra, who, uh, who is known mostly for his anti-poems, he calls them. Um, but he, he's also writing these things he called eco, eco-poemas, eco-poems. And in a, in a quote or in an interview uh, or a poem, I can't remember, he, he, he talks about um, um, ecology and, and, you know, this idea of the eco-poem is crossing all boundaries, like he's able to it, it it doesn't become you know he's able to to talk about these things with with everybody and everyone can kind of be on the same page more or less in some way because the the evidence is so apparent you know and um, if he was still alive I wonder what he'd think about like all these you know climate change deniers and and yeah. trying to you know but at the heart they must know you know like people like that uh, who 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 try and like change it I think they really know and I think we're seeing that. And so no, I would be. I would. I mean, I. I. I would see that. I, I would see myself in that um, tradition as well. And Forrest Gander too. I mean, I. I love his work and his, his uh, core sample book. And you know, we're also friends as well. I just saw him in San Francisco and got yeah. to hang out with him. And he's, his work is fabulous. I mean, the language. And he also uses, this kind of very scientific language and comes directly out of. Uh, his, his uh, being a student of geology and this idea of the core sample, you know, which I love too, you know, and I, I once was able to visit, you know, a, a uh, core sample uh, archive. Really? <laughs> which was, yeah, yeah, it was, huh. it's great. It's right in outside of uh, 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 the city of New York on the, uh, towards the Palisades. I can't remember the name of this, but it's, uh, it's a research institute that's connected to Columbia in some way, or these uh, students could go there. But it's just, yeah, this whole library of, of core samples, and you just see, trying to see, like, what happened through uh, geologic time. And, and then that kind of vertical idea of, of, um, of time and, and, and place. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's one of the fascinating things about any, anywhere, you know, wherever um, you go, there, there, there is this um, ecological and, and, and also geological history, and then you're dealing with the history uh, of humanity, you know, and what we've done with the environment. I think it's, you know, there's there's also a, um, a discipline ethnography that I that I love to read uh, books in that uh, in that field, and and I think it, ethnography is able to uh, be a place where 
where other disciplines cross, and I see that as it, with with poetry too, hmm. and just the same in a similar way as 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 this idea of place can be, you know, across um, disciplines and being able to bring in different things. Yeah. Well, you have this in the introduction to your anthology, "Birds, Beasts, and Seas: Nature Poems." Mm-hmm. You you paraphrase the Japanese philosopher Karatani. Is that how you say? Oh it? yeah, yeah, Ka- uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Karatani. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and he says. Nature is the negative figure at the heart of our making. Mm-hmm. Nature is complexity in simplicity. Nature is a god in ruins. Nature is a rightness of self. Nature is a constant regeneration. And then this last line is what I want. I want to hear what you make of this last line. Nature lets us speak. Poetry is its excess. Yeah, that's actually mine line at the oh, end, really? at the end there. Yeah, it's well, I a, love that line. Yeah, so he has uh, he has a line in there, and then I kind of like spin off from it. And you know, I was I wrote that a long time ago, so I'd have to actually look and see what was is what. But but that uh, you know, I could claim that line. <laughs> well, it made you me know. think of and, For- uh, Forrest Gander sometimes talks about certain cultures where uh, the words aren't coming from the speaker. Right. It's more like a shamanistic view. Oh yeah. That the yeah. that yeah. So if, if right. poetry is the excess right. and nature is what lets us speak, yeah. then in a way we're speaking nature is speaking through us. Yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, it, it's I mean that that kind of thing that comes at the end of the preface was was trying to sum up a little bit of what uh, how as I was how I was approaching editing an anthology of quote unquote nature poems, uh, which can also be called eco poems or you know I, I know people make a very philosophers make a distinct trying to make a, a distinction between you know that ecology and nature, but um, but in this case I, I kind of equate the two, um, and 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 so. Um, and so, yeah, and so it was a kind of that summation was kind of a way of, of trying to see how uh, uh, nature is both outside of us and inside of us and is us and a part of us, you know. And so trying to kind of get that perspective of in and of out or, you know, it's it's almost impossible. And so you're, you're and so what is the poem trying to do, you know, and its relation to nature and art in general? I mean, I don't think art can really move away from nature. It's always part of nature, you know. Yeah. People have tried, even you know, abstract expressionists and stuff, and uh, uh, you know, or are not, if not explicitly, you know, with that in mind. Um, it's it's the great uh, inspiration for everything, for all of our art, you know, and uh, um, and whether directly or indirectly, you know, and so, um, and, and then to see how we've, how, what we're doing in our actions, you know, with the environment and how we live, it's just an untenable situation, you know, um, and I think we're, we're, we know this more now and, 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 you know, many people are trying to, of course, change that, but, uh, I think a poem tries to become more aware of that too, Yeah. And, but I'm really interested in the shamanistic side of things too. You are, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, even a poem, "Vanishing Line," that with uh, with shamans in it, or shaman shamanistic kind of things. And 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 then Osman, the Uyghur poet, I trans, co-translated with him, himself. He 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 sees. Uh, I mean, the Uyghur tradition it comes directly out of that idea of a shaman, you know, uh, poetic oral tradition. Hmm. Yeah. Could you read us Saad? Oh, yeah, sure. Saad. Each day at the hottest hour, the ladies' sprinklers turn on, 
to water her squared patch of lawn. Turf green bracketed between plots of low chroma, friable yard, a desert dream of sod sushi baran. And this continues on on this page. Um, there's two other little poems here. Epigraph to desert passages from Voss. Quote, deserts have been shown to resist history and develop along their own lines. A mirage of sameness dispelled, each sand grain a snowflake, each desert distinct epoch to biome, each sunset heaven displaced, each memory obsquatulates from arid vacancy to a margin of safety, from profundity to mortality, from tragedy to microalgae salinity, promise of configurative energy. This reminds, that ending reminds me a little bit of the final poem or the final part of an aquarium, mm -hmm. which begins with the out of harmony human with the 67 atomic bomb tests in the Marshall Islands. Yeah, yeah. And it ends with an algae that's discovered then, mm -hmm. a type of algae that lives symbiotically in a reciprocal relationship with the coral, but, yeah. the, but the coral that was now dead. And that relationship was something in biology called mutualism yeah that might hint at a different possibility of how to relate to the land yeah and to history and to otherness than perhaps a substation would but um i also wanted to ask you about this mutualism in relationship to the way you use circles and the way you're meditating on circles right because at one point in hey marfa rackstraw downs quotes Cezanne, mm -hmm. and he said by force of looking and working, nature becomes concentric. Mm -hmm. And Downs later in the book quotes Henry James, who said, really universally, relations stop nowhere, and the exquisite problem of the artist is eternally but to draw, by a geometry of his own, the circle in which they shall happily appear to do so. Mm -hmm. And then we have m multiple poems in the book entitled Circle. Right. What what's going on with circles? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I'll say a couple things about that in the book. I mean, the shape of the circle um, is very important to, as a metaphor and also as a as a structuring element uh, in the book. Not that to say that the whole the whole book kind of begins and ends in the same place, and but more in the sense of. Um, of the book kind of circles out uh, from Marfa into other in a, into other things, um, other places, other philosophies and things. And I don't know if it's more of like a rippling concentric thing, but um, so the poems in the book called Circle that are that are threaded throughout the book here and there, they kind of also take a a, a, a circular shape in the sense that the line kind of, uh, or the poem begins with the same line and ends with the same line, sometimes with two or three of the lines. And then and then I even kind of like went outside that and did that with one or two, maybe just one other poem, the substation poem, um, that are, that's, uh, yeah, with a different title. And um, again, it was just another way of trying to echo or trying to tie things together and make, make 
really kind of um, try and make this idea of a circle resonate in different ways. Um, and um, I mean, I should say too, like that idea of the, of the form of the poem and the circle. I mean, I, I can remember in seventh grade, a friend of mine writing a short story and it kind of began and ended with the same paragraph, you know, that, that, that way of writing. And so I, I think that isn't necessarily new, but it was a fresh and childlike way of, playful way is, is, uh, of, of um, nodding to that, um, to that form, that shape. Um, what else did you mention again about the uh, other well, circles? The uh, well, mut I was thinking oh, also mutualism, of mutualism, right? Yeah, and, and so yeah, yeah. No, I mean you had mentioned that poem in in the book of uh, Inquirium, the last Susanthaly, which, and it is, it does. Those kinds of relationships do form a circle in our scientific um, world, um, in our environment. But it's not just you know that's the thing. It's not. It's always more complicated than 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 even. I mean, we're able to look at these things. You know, I was a marine biology or neuroscience major in in college, and I, I used to take all these biochemistry classes and things. And when you look at these pathways, you're really having to kind of just simplify it in a way so that we can understand it. But these pathways um, are all often they're always connected to other pathways. It's not just you know you can't just have the single. Um, the single circle. Right. So if you have, say, in, in the example of the, um, in the coral, the algae and, and you know, and the, the symbiotic algae and the coral and, and how that all works, you, you have to look at it in other circles too that are, that are always moving around. And so, and so there is this kind of almost spherical shape that comes up too, you know, of, 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 of these circles being, uh, supporting each other, sustaining each other. And rather than, um, rather than kind of just like uh, being a parasitic kind of thing, you know, um, which also exists in nature, but, uh, but it can't survive without these other circular relationships. And so trying to find that with our relationship to each other and in our environment and to, to uh, um, places, I mean, I think is not really the key if we want to survive, yeah. rather than trying to like move to Mars or something. <laughs> Well, I was yeah. I was taking that idea of mutualism and placing it into asking the question, um, not about algae and coral, but about humans in place. Mm -hmm. Because partially the Cezanne quote was intriguing to me, and maybe this is getting too metaphysical when, oh, he, right. when he says, nature becomes concentric by force of looking and working, mm -hmm. which seems to suggest that we are active participants yeah in a way that it becomes concentric yeah through through looking and working and then and then you've you've talked in interviews about a quote by an archaeologist john malcolm russell that you at least at one point had above your desk yeah and it said there is something about having a past having a sense of who you are that allows you to measure yourself against what political leaders or market forces that you should be the the twinning of there's something about having a past yeah. and having a sense of who you are like yeah. he's linking the two yeah, yeah. having a past yeah. and having a sense of who you are yeah and when i think about say like elsie bright or these other settlers uh -huh. or sort of an a purely aspirational right forward-looking poetry yeah or poetic yeah. vision yeah um it, maybe it's not about having a sense of who you are yeah I don't know. Like I'm thinking yeah. about the way the core sample uh -huh. 
is is and going in one way you're going farther away from you you're digging right. down into the earth uh-huh. but in doing so maybe you're finding out who you are yeah because you're finding out where you're standing yeah yeah no i mean well I'll, I'll say a couple things about that like first to your first the first part of um of what you just said is that i mean with rackstraw and that and his quote um what he's describing and when and the quote he uses is how he really perceives his the, the, the world when he's looking at it to paint. It's not something that he imagines. He, he sees these curves and um, how he perceives the landscape and it's there and and, and, and and I think that's why he's you know why that quote is so important to him. Um, you see it too in the paintings in the book and in the drawings, especially one of the drawings where the substation is really just kind of like this uh, curving out at you, and that's how that's how he's viewing it, and that's how the, his perception of seeing it from um, where he's standing, you know, that and when he says when it's by force of looking, it's really through looking and looking, and looking, and looking. That's I think that's what. It means there, and um, and being open to what he's seeing, rather than say um, doing something out of convention or tradition uh, of making say a horizon like just whoosh, like flat or something like that. Um, yeah, the other thing too. I mean, that other quote that you that you that you mentioned is really important to me as well. I. I I think it's less about, I mean, for me, like digging through these things in poetry and trying to find this past and, and where our place is, is in it, it's it's very much a kind of uh, where you stand kind of thing. I mean, it's, it, and that's kind of how, you know, uh, history, uh, especially, say, in a Howard Zinn kind of tradition, of of looking, of looking at that history and how it relates to each of us, gives us a place in order to um, to figure out how to to be strong enough to 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 not be shaped by all these other things that are trying to shape us in ways you know, and again it's not always this kind of like this fight, but I think at least. I think for everyone, I mean, from a very early age, we're, we're being told what to wear and what, to, I mean, on, just on this level, you know, and what to buy and everything like that, that rather than just kind of like, you know, going all in and, and just uh, not um, thinking about these things, it's really more about thinking about where, you know, we come from as much as we can and trying to figure out uh, why things are the way they are um, in order to be able to to move forward uh, thoughtfully, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in order to to figure out what to do next, rather than say um, just just going along with with a new kind of technological invention or something that changes our behavior, and then seeing the repercussions of of that, and and then catching up, because it always seems like we're having to undo so much right now, and that takes. Centuries, you know, it takes decades to undo, you know, and it can all. I, I kind of feel like it can be undone, uh, at least, you know. But then, rather than always being 
playing catch-up in that way, trying to to look outside of like what is just profitable, you know, strictly profitable, and and trying to figure out how to live more mindfully, you know, in that way, so that um, we're not always having to kind of undo what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. You know, because it seems, that seems like a cycle in itself, uh, in a way, and it's hard to know how to break that in, in, I mean, I think it has been done in different levels, but trying to do that, you know, I think is, is what a, a lot of people are trying to do. Yeah. Well, before we finish, I wanted to ask you a, a question about process. Yeah. Because you, you've had all sorts of mathematical or numerological constraints as you wrote an aquarium yes using uh, prime numbers and the number five as yeah. organizing principles and the book you edited time of grief is divided into 49 days or stations of grief which represent the 49 days of the bardo in the buddhist calendar or the 49 days of counting the omer in the jewish calendar so you're supposed to use it as a tool and read poems specific poems on each of the 49 days while you're in mourning. Yeah. So I was curious if there were any constraints that you employed when making Hey Marfa. Um, not like that in the same way. There was in the book, there was in the poem Yenikot you mentioned, um, the nine poems and nine sections. Uh, in, this, in this book, I didn't, um, I didn't do that. It was more um, um, loose in that way. Um, but and it kind of like was directed by other things like what we've already been talking about like some of these um, repeating uh, poems, titles um, the book of last words and these themes and lines that come through so so no there wasn't there wasn't any kind of like um, real numerical thing except for um, you know it, yeah I mean the circle poems we talked about and, right. and stuff, and then and then the thirteen stations. That's probably the oh, right. only you right. know the numerical thing, uh, the thirteen drawings and thirteen stations. Uh, yeah. And what are you working on now? Um, a couple of things. I'll just talk about one of them because I, I th maybe if we have time, you had mentioned uh, you sometimes have people read something else. But I've been working on this book of essays for a long time. Um, longer than this book, Hey Marfa, just kind of like off and on, um, often kind of just when I get stuck or something needs to rest, I'll just pick something else up that helps me, helps me uh, uh, figure something else out. And so, um, so these essays that I've been writing, um, kind of dealing with um, poetry, translation, and, and art, those kind of main three main things. Um, and that definitely overlap in ways with with um, with the poetry books you know some yeah. of those things <laughs> like there's yeah anyways yeah well could we finish with the with the reading of the last page of hey Marfa sure yeah I interloper who dares to add these grains to the sands what do you know of yes and no of wind and bone of dust and thirst of the ever-shifting rose in the foriferous, radiant record of the real, sung from the well, aligned in the heliosphere. Can you make the air tremble with brightness, draw the form from the ash, center hope's filaments with your unsung song, hear the moon's echo submerged in the mirror, your uncertain manifoldness, your sleep I sail. It's great having you on the show today, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. Yeah. 
We're talking today to Jeffrey Yang, reading from his latest poetry collection, Hey Marfa, from Grey Wolf Press. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. I've uploaded an as-of-yet unpublished poetic essay by Jeffrey Yang called Ancestors, an essay that was inspired by the art of the Korean feminist artist Yun Sung Nam. This joins bonus material by Laylee Long Soldier, Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Oris Gander, John Keane, Jen Bervin, and others. All this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.